if you would grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to press pause on our study in 2 Peter until a little bit later this summer, but something Peter has written in 2 Peter has prompted me to think about it might be profitable for us to return to a, a subject that is very significant, sanctified singing. Sanctified singing. So we can join together at Colossians chapter 3. We'll spend some time here this week and Lord willing next Sunday, primarily looking at verse 16. I'm going to read Colossians 3 starting in verse 12 so that we get some of that context. Paul writing to the Colossians says, put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And then hear our verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word says that you inhabit the praises of Israel. You dwell in the praises of your people. Lord, you dwell within your people. That is the mystery of Christ, this hope of glory. So Father, we pray that the Spirit would be at work in and among us as your word is opened, explained, proclaimed, and believed and lived out. God, be our help. Unite not only our minds and our hearts, but our voices to sing your praise, to spur one another on. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I want to ask you a question. It's a significant one, I believe. Does our singing at church matter? Does singing at church matter? Does what we just did matter? Well, I'm reminded of a a dear friend of mine, many here at Cornerstone. There was a family called the Wilsons. John and Lana and their three boys were precious part of our church family here at Cornerstone for a number of years. And uh, several years ago, they moved down to South Jordan, Utah, It wasn't very long after they'd arrived that uh, tragedy struck. Uh, John had woken up in the middle of the night with great pains. And uh, very soon after, he was in the arms of Jesus. It was heartbreaking. It certainly wasn't what John and Lana and the boys had expected when they went to bed. 
that wasn't the message that many of us back here in Billings expected to receive the next morning. It was just absolutely heartbreaking. John was 44 years old. Well, a few days later, there were a handful of us who were on the road to Salt Lake, be with the family and attend John's memorial service. And John's wife, Lana, had served with me on our music ministry team. She loved to sing. And uh, while I was there talking with her, then that first night that we'd arrived, she shared with me that one of the songs that had just captivated her heart and was going to be played at John's funeral the next day was a song called, Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane. It's a song that echoes the words of Job, or though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. See, Lana, Lana had first heard that song at Cornerstone. In fact, she helped me introduce it that morning. She was singing with our team the morning that we first sang it as a congregation. And now it was the song that she held tightly to in the middle of the night as she wept and feared and wondered. She mourned the loss of her best friend. Does our singing at church matter? Well, a little bit later, that August... Several months after that, we had our first annual church camp out, and we got to enjoy some singing around the campfire out in Red Lodge. There was a question that had really been wrestling with since the trip home from John's funeral. There was several months of thinking upon it, and as our group dwindled down and we had a little bit more of an intimate setting, just a handful of us around the fire singing, I asked my brothers and sisters a question. I said, what songs would you like us to sing to you as you lay on your hospital bed dying? What would you like to hear your most precious loved ones singing as you near eternity? I asked them, what songs will you sing to me as I lay dying? What songs will you encourage one another with? Will you have any songs to sing? Will you remember the lyrics? Or will you have to just mumble out some melodies? So does our singing at church matter? It wasn't but a couple weeks after that that my wife walked into our church office silent and weeping, and I immediately knew that we'd lost our baby. And we entered, like those in Psalm 137, a foreign land. We were exiles who sat down for a season by the waters of Babylon, and we wept. And we hung up our harps on the willows. That was a season where we couldn't sing. It was a season we didn't want to sing, actually. We had to rely on other people to sing for us. 
We had to show up here and have people sing to us. And yet, inspired by Lana's example, just several months earlier, as she sang through her grief, as she lamented through her pain and loss, the Holy Spirit began to help my wife and I sing through our own suffering. Even if that looked like lamentation, crying out, singing why, singing though you slay me. Eventually that gave way to even being able to praise and thank God just for another day and for the little boy we did have. It was the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that other people were singing to us and that we were hearing in the setting of corporate worship that began to be on the front lines of the war zone for us against doubt and anger and despair and hopelessness and wonder. They fought for us. What we didn't even know that year was that very soon we were going to have to make another trip to Babylon. And what I could not have told you was that that would be one of the greatest privileges I've had as a pastor is to go to Babylon with other people as they hang up their harps on the willows. Does our singing at church matter? I believe so. I believe it matters far more than we are willing to admit. In fact, Bob Coughlin has said this. He said, gathering for worship is like a life-shaping, is a life-shaping moment in the congregation's week. Our task as pastors is to seize the opportunity for an all-out assault on their hearts. And as servants of God, we prepare people for death and we prepare them for eternity. And most of them think they're just going to church. Many of us, I, th I think, would say that we believe singing matters. But I think if we were honest, we'd have to say, yeah, singing matters. It just, it just doesn't matter that much. <laughs> you know, it's something that's optional, not necessarily essential. It's something that we can do. We're thinking more about now. We, we hardly sing with an eye to the future. We're thinking about what's going on right now. Maybe we even show up saying, you know what, I'll sing. Sure, I'll sing. It's important. I'll sing. If I'm good at it, if I have a good voice, you know, I'll sing if I like the songs that Pastor Rick chose. You know, I liked one and three, but number two, uh-uh. <laughs> Didn't like it. I'll sing if I feel like it. I'll sing if I was a good Christian last week, you know, so that I'm sh I show up and God will receive my worship because I did really good this last week. Or I won't sing because I failed so miserably. I might as well just stay silent. Nobody would want to hear me sing anyways. God for sure wouldn't want me to sing after all the things I've done. Maybe we say, if God would just blank, then I'd sing. If my life just finally, then I'd sing. Friends, I want to submit to you that that is a sad, sad day for God's people because that's when we show up and we just play church. We move our lips, we make some sounds, but our heart is far, far from worship. Unfortunately, that would be the times in which we play religion. It's when we do religion. See, singing at church is not just for a, a few professionals who can 
put some good albums together and you get to listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music. It's not just for the best voices. It's, it's not even meant to be a, a performance or a show by which the, the lights and the smoke give you an experience that you've never had before. Singing together as a church is a holy thing because we are gathered to sing and glorify God and as we sing to edify one another. We sanctify our singing so that our singing sanctifies us. That's what I want to submit to you is really at the heart of Colossians 3.16. And it's going to be what's at the heart of our message today and next week is sanctified singing. To sanctify something means to set it apart for a holy purpose. We do music and singing for all kinds of reasons and purposes throughout life. I mean, you listen to it in the car. Maybe you listen to it on the way here. You use it to exercise. There's music and singing at, at the weddings. In fact, I wish you could have seen Steve Glancy and David Kelly at uh, the wedding uh, back in December, cutting, cutting a rug. It, it was something to behold. We use music and song for movies and for to help us... Uh, Put us to sleep. I could have used some last night from my little Luke. <laughs> Would have been helpful. Whoever came up with daylight savings time is going to be fired. Should be fired. We use music for all kinds of things. We sing for all kinds of reasons. But when we gather together on the Lord's day, our singing and our songs are sanctified. That is, they're set apart for the holy purpose of helping us magnify the greatness of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that together as we combine God's word and good music, good melodies, we rehearse and remember God's truth. We proclaim it to him and to one another. And we practice for a day that has not yet arrived. We ready ourselves for not only the day of death, but for an entire eternity. So as we sanctify our songs, and they're devoted to the purpose of glorifying God, those become a means by which God sanctifies us. He's ordained the church to not only preach, to not only pray, to not only give, to not only feast, but to sing. And when we sing, it's a three-dimensional. Our singing is vertical in that we sing to God. Our singing is horizontal. We sing to one another, the text says. And it's personal. We sing to our own hearts, fickle and fallible, prone to wonder, Lord, give me the truth I need. And so by that way, our corporate singing becomes this harmony of hearts and voices, of a mixture of people with all kinds of different experiences coming together in Christ, lifting their voices in praise and song to him. And as we do that, becomes a means of sanctification for us and others. So I want to give you a four-part harmony of sanctified singing. Four-part harmony of sanctified singing. If you get that joke, you're musical. Congratulations. If you don't, ask the person next to you, what's a four-part harmony and why does that matter? The first part, and this is what we're only going to focus on today. The first part in the harmony of sanctified singing is this. We sing as precious saints in a community of grace. We sing as precious saints in a community of grace. 
Lord willing, next week we'll consider the other three parts, but I want to help us see that we sing as precious saints in a community of grace. And what we're going to unpack here is that identity and community are the context in which sanctified singing happens. See, in verse 16, look at it with me. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, in y'all, all of you, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. So today, we're just going to unpack those words, you and one another, because they are utterly significant if we're going to sanctify our singing and be sanctified by our singing. Who is you? Who, who is one another, we want to ask? Let's start considering the you's before Colossians 3.16. The you in Colossians, Paul addresses as precious saints, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In chapter 1, he says that they've beheld um, this Christ in such a way that they have believed the word of truth, the gospel. They've understood, understood the grace of God in truth, which is the gospel. They have a faith in Christ Jesus. They have a love for all the saints, and they have a hope laid up for them that is unshakable. They're also a people who are being conformed to the image of Christ because they've been taken out of darkness and into light, in whom Christ they have the redemption of their sins. The forgiveness of all their sins. In fact, he uses a wonderful illustration that Pastor Jeff has continued to help us grasp throughout the years. That is by the time you get to chapter 2, we're talking about how yours and my significant certificate of debt, our, our track record of sin, our portfolio of every wrong in your attitude and actions, your deeds and your desire, all of it in one binder showing that we are worthy of God's wrath and eternal death. That was nailed to the tree in Christ, in his body. He bore it for us, such that we are completely forgiven and new in him. And so any kind of teaching that would move these people away from the supremacy and preeminence of Christ, that would try to say, you trust in Jesus plus your works, you trust in Jesus plus tradition, you trust in Jesus plus philosophy. Paul says, no, Christ and Christ alone is enough. Do not be swayed. Do not be led astray. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth, and wait with diligence for the return of Christ. And therefore, church, by the time you get to verse 16 of chapter 3, you have already encountered this rich identity of precious saints who in verse 12 are said to be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Church, those are identity statements. Those are identity statements. And I want to help you grasp the relationship between our identity, who we are, and our activity, what we do. Imagine with me just for a second, Michael Jordan dancing in a ballet. A little weird, yeah. How about a dentist chewing tobacco? Ah, yeah. What about um, a lion eating a spinach salad? Veggie burger as well. What about a man dressing like a woman? 
See, all of those examples illustrate the disconnect between somebody's identity and their activity. Jordan's a basketball player, not a ballerina. Lions love a good burger, maybe from the divide. That's my favorite burger, by the way. If, anybody's, if anybody wants to go to lunch, you know where to take me. The point is that that dissonance between who somebody is and what they do points us to the reality that here in Colossians 3, if we are saints, chosen, holy, and beloved, and yet we don't sing, then there's a disconnect between our identity and what God calls us to be doing. Does that make sense? I am thoroughly convinced the more that I read the Bible, we do not make enough, we do not stress enough the identity that we have in Christ. What is most deeply true about us, what is who we are, is not determined by what other people say about us or who other people say we are. It's not even determined by what we say we are or who we say we are. Our identity is determined by who God says we are. And who God says we are are chosen, holy, and beloved. The word chosen simply means elect, predestined in love before time began. We are holy. That word is not an imperative saying be holy. It's an indicative saying you are a holy one. That's an identity statement. Beloved is a, a word that means precious, cherished, valuable recipients of God's covenant love. I, I don't know if I could think of a better example for some object that is chosen holy and beloved than my little daughter's bunny. We have a very creative name for bunny. His name is Bunny. And he is tattered. All the fur is pressed down. A one and a half year old daughter cannot go to sleep without it. In fact, last night, once again, I was searching through the house, high and low, every part, found it in a little stroller so that she could go to sleep. It's cherished. She takes it with her everywhere. She loves it. She cuddles it. She looks at it. There's no other bunny besides that bunny. It is chosen, holy, and beloved to her. How much more than the people of God, redeemed in Christ, precious to the Lord, See, our identity is not dependent upon our goodness, but on God's grace. And the way then that our identity becomes impactful to our singing, how it shapes our singing, I think is helpful by maybe thinking about going back to Colossae, maybe going to church in Colossae. Imagine 2,000 years ago, you're here at church in Colossae, and you notice up in the third row, there's a, there's a dad who, before coming to Christ, had exercised his common authority in that culture to put one of his kids to death by exposure. Left him out in the garbage. Well, then you look in the back, and there are these two slaves sitting near this harsh master who treats them like trash. And their master's sitting right next to them, wrestling with his own sin as he, he hears the joy in the slave's songs and voices as they sing praise to the king who freed them. Well, then there's a woman in this row over on this side of the church who 
She used to sell her body for money. And even after coming to know Jesus, she still at times wonders if there's going to be ever a way that she could just scrub the filthy feelings of shame off of her. Nair Hur is a young man once known as a local thief. His repentance and generosity amazed the church when this guy got saved, but just last Wednesday, he, he lied to his boss. And now he shows up to church frightened as to where that's going to lead him. Still others had interacted with some of the cult prostitutes in the nearby temple and almost gave in to that temptation. Others showed up feeling the glare of the difference between their ethnicities, their cultures colliding. They came to church and they know what people say about them. They know what people think about them. They, they know the gossip that happens behind closed doors. And then sitting there at church is Epaphras. He started the church. He planted this church. And he's looking around at all these people who he knows have come to know the Lord Jesus. And he's rejoicing that this group could be found together praising God. How would those people sing? How could you sing when you're living in light of your old identity, who you once were? But think about the songs that would flow from their hearts and their mouths as they were reminded they are chosen, holy, and beloved by Christ. Oh, that would fuel joy. It would fuel worship. It would fuel praise and thanks. It would be singing to each other what is true about one another. And you think about as they go throughout the week, they dismiss from church. I mean, they don't have any Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or Pandora to help them throughout the week. They're not using the Trinity hymnal. If they did, they would have used the blue version, which is the Reformed Baptist version, right? Not the red one. <laughs> Presbyterian version. <laughs> red. Yeah. I mean, where would those people access the music and the gospel truths that would go with them throughout the week? Where would they hear that? They would hear it when they showed up to church and they sang and they sang and they heard one another singing. And the message of the gospel was applied fresh to them. That's when they'd sing. So what about you? What about us? What, like, what's your story? What did you show up thinking, feeling, hoping for, longing for, missing, curious about, hurting from? What did you show up with today? What, what is your story? How, how is God rewriting, rescripting your story so that you don't live in light of who you once were, but you live in light of who he says you are. How is he doing that for you? See, you and I are who God says we are because Jesus is who he is. 
In fact, you can look at the New Testament and you will find that Jesus Christ himself is the chosen one. He is the holy one. He is the beloved one. And so all who are in Christ are then chosen, holy, and beloved. And as we then live out of our identity and our union with Christ, so we begin to not only sing praises to him, we begin to sing like him. Do you remember that Jesus himself sang? He sang. Every Sabbath, he sang the Psalms. Psalm 118, we're going to learn about in a few weeks, right? After the Passover meal, what did they do? They sang a song. And then what did he do upon the cross? He sang a song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Risen in victory, Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings his victory over us. He quiets us with his love. And what will eternity be but a song to Jesus, the lamb who was slain? It is he who redeems us and makes sinners into singers, who takes, as Psalm 40 says, our feet out of the miry clay, sets them on the rock, puts a new song in our mouths, and makes us want to sing so that many others will fear the Lord too. We sing not only to him, we sing like him. Conformed to his image, sanctified as we sing, sanctified by our singing. And it's one of the loveliest, most beautiful images on the earth when a group of ransomed sinners, now chosen, holy, and beloved in Christ, gather together in worship and they remember and are reminded of that they are not identified by who they used to be or who they say they are now or what they're still struggling with today, but who they are in Christ, then begin to lift their voices together. Sing praise to the living God together and then set their eyes upon Christ seeking to put to death what is earthly in them and walk together as a family of grace. See, church, sanctified singing happens by individuals, precious saints who live in light of their identity in Christ, but who are part of a community of grace. And when people show up in the family of God with that identity, it can be a blessing where the fruits of the Spirit are plentiful and abundant. But boy, when the fruits of the flesh are present among us, nobody wants to sing. It's a curse. It feels more like a curse. See, Paul's telling them in Colossians 3 to put to death these things that are earthly in them, the sexual immorality, impurity, the passions, evil desires and covetousness, all this idolatry. He says, that's how you used to live. Don't live like that anymore. You're in Christ. So put away your anger and your malice and your wrath and your envy. Put away the old self with all its practices and begin to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anybody has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As God has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That's when we hear, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. People who are precious saints in a community of grace. Listen, when our community of grace is not bearing those fruits of the spirit, but the fruits of the flesh, it, it, it's tough to want to be here. It's tough to want to sing. I, it makes me think about how Satan loves to silence the song of the church. One of the most staggering and startling pictures I've ever seen of that was when I was watching this documentary on the Pacific Ocean. The first episode was beautiful high-definition images of God's creation. I mean, like the colors were just bursting off the screen. Woes and wows were like just coming out every minute. I couldn't believe it. Well, a few days later, I watched the second episode and it was called Violent. It was a play on words because the word Pacific means peaceful. And it was anything but peaceful happening in the Pacific. That was going to be an up-close and personal lesson, not on the beauty of creation, but on the brokenness. The thorns that hurt, the, the pains of life where serpents strike, literally. There was an island, this documentary went on, off the coast of China called Shadao, which translated Snake Island. It's covered with 20,000 pit vipers. They starve and sleep all summer until autumn arrives when millions of migrating birds, songbirds, stop to rest their weary wings on the tree branches. These ravenous vipers will wake up at dawn, slither along the branches, twist around the twigs and camouflage themselves as they wait for a little songbird to unknowingly perch itself on the branch. Well, suddenly my screen was just filled with a zoomed in picture of one of these little songbirds. It had been all these beautiful songs throughout the whole point, right? So this little bird is singing its song right in the center of my screen. And suddenly from the bottom of the screen, this mouth opens and a pit viper sinks its fangs into this songbird. And it goes silent. The show goes silent. That songbird wasn't singing anymore. The, the scene, so vivid, it's still in my mind. It was on my screen for an uncomfortably long amount of time. So much so that I, I, I looked away and then I looked back and it was still there. I grabbed the remote and shut it off and, and just kind of sat there and collected myself. It wasn't so much the violence of creation that, that got me as opposed to the, the truth that I felt the Lord had just helped me grasp. It was a picture from God's world that brought one of God's words to focus. That is that Satan loves to silence the songs of the church. If he can, he will. And one 
of the ways that he loves to do that is by tempting precious saints to live not in light of their identity in Christ, but in light of their struggle, light of the sin they can't quite break free from, in light of what they used to be and used to do. And he uses a community of grace that is hardly such as we bite and devour one another, withholding forgiveness from one another, withholding compassion, being harsh, gossiping, speaking maliciously to each other, such that as we bite and devour one another, he doesn't even have to do it. We just take care of it for him. That is not a place, and those are not people, where you will find sanctified singing. You'll find people hurting. You'll find people doing religion. You'll be hard-pressed to find sanctified singing. But oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in faith and unity. For the bonds of peace and acceptance and love are the fruits of his presence here among us. And so with one voice, we will sing to the Lord. And with one heart, we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees what? That the Redeemer has come and he dwells in the presence of his people. So does singing at church matter? I hope you have a better answer now than when you walked in. I pray that you're more convinced of it than ever. Because sanctified singing will happen here in this community of grace and amongst these precious saints. Saints who are still sinners, yes, but sinners who are becoming who they are in Christ. And so we sing. Church, sing. Not because you're good at it. Not because you feel like it. Not because you like the music. Not because you like the songs. Not because it comes naturally to you. Not because you feel guilty. Not even because I told you so. Sing because you're a precious saint in a community of grace. God has created you to sing. He has chosen you to sing. He has commanded you to sing. His gospel compels you to sing as you remember what Christ did for you upon that cross. How his resurrection secures your justification. How you will sing throughout all eternity the praises of our God and King and how you get to rehearse every Sunday here together with people that are hard to love, with people that make you want to go, <laughs> with people who will be singing to you as you lay dying, with people who love you and love the Lord with you. Let me end with a quote from the Dr. Martin Luther. He says this, I, Dr. Martin Luther, wish all lovers of the unshackled art of music, grace, and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard worthy the lovely gift of music, which is precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to mankind by God. 
The riches of music are so excellent, so precious, that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In summary, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Our dear fathers and prophets who did not desire without reason that music would always be in the churches, that's why we have so many songs and psalms for the precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for that express purpose of praising and extolling God. He goes on in, in Luther-like style. He says, a person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed. In other words, he's an uncivilized hick. That's the slang. This person does not deserve to be called a human being. Whoa. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of donkeys and the grunting of hogs, end quote. Well, I don't know if we need to uh, imitate Luther's attitude at the end there, but I do think it's worthwhile we imitate his passion. Our singing is significant to the Lord, to one another, and to us personally. And so does it matter at church? You bet it does. We're precious saints in this community of grace. We get to sanctify our singing so that by our singing we get to be sanctified for God's glory and for our endurance. That's for sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your matchless and timeless word. We thank you for the supremacy and preeminence of Christ, his gospel, good news of grace to us. It just makes us want to sing fills our hearts with gratitude, teaches us to love and serve one another instead of preferring ourselves. No, Father, we thank you for your spirit who brings these truths now to bear on each of our lives. Lord, you know the story of each one here. You know what we are wrestling with. You know what we are pained with. You know where the serpents are striking and silencing. God, would you please put that song back into the hearts of your people. You've said we are chosen, holy, and beloved. Help us then to not only live out the commands we've read about, but to even begin living out that command of letting the word of Christ dwell within us richly. That we might teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Oh God, by your grace, let us make melody in our hearts to you. For your glory we pray. Amen.